0: It's from Luke fourteen, verses twenty-five. Now great cries accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, "If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If he ever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple." For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it otherwise when he has laid a foundation is and is not able to finish all he see it began to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish or what king going out to encounter another king in war
1: my own political views not that any of them are well formed anyway um, maybe like me you've been uh, simultaneously amused and terrified by some of the presidential campaigns uh in the usa okay um i would say that red or blue maybe haven't done themselves any favors okay but in a more virtuous way than that in a much more noble way than that jimmy carter once tarnished his popularity by challenging a nation with the truth. In July 1979, in a major television sermon-like address, Jimmy Carter drew attention to what he deemed as the moral crisis in the USA. And I want to read some of that uh, speech to you and summarize some of it for you. He spoke of the problem in the US in these words. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. And to underline the seriousness of this he concluded in this way, this is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but this is the truth and it's a warning. Now, Americans didn't take well to this challenge to their hedonistic culture, their culture which, is, which was you know, positioned in such a way to chase happiness through the material to run after fulfilment and satisfaction through gaining more stuff, more possessions. And many political commentators would say that because of this speech, because of that speech, Ronald Reagan won by a landslide. Now, there were other issues as well that contributed to that. Jimmy Carter was buying on the money, okay, of his assessment of America at that time. Um, And it certainly applies to America at this time and also the rest of Western uh, civilization as we know it today. But in a similar way, Jesus in this passage that we've just heard read to us, in terms of his his, uh, uh, popularity, he doesn't do himself any favors. Imagine a politician saying, if you vote for me, You're going to have to hate those who are closest to you. You're going to have to wave goodbye to those people that love you most. You're going to have to disown your property and your possessions. All right, who's going to vote for me? Who's jumping on my team? Who's ticking the box beside my name at the ballot station? You see, when you challenge people's comfort and their control, and their capital, it's never going to be popular. And these verses that we've heard read are some of the most unpopular words of Jesus. And I think you can imagine why that might be the case upon hearing them. They're some of the most unpopular, and they're some of the most challenging words. These are not fridge-magnet uh, verses, okay? Uh, they are not feel-good verses. Um, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I would bet uh, a lot of money on the fact that maybe you did not drink your coffee this morning out of a mug with these verses on them, okay? Um, now, you guys are hipsters, and, and probably don't drink out of coffee out of mugs with verses on them. You drink coffee out of, I don't know, you guys, Hazel knows these things more than me, but like Chemexes or whatever, those things, I don't know. Um, but these are not comfortable words. But I really do think that they're transformative words. They're powerful words. They're words soaked in potency to transform us when they're rightly understood. And strangely, I think we can be comforted by these words. In verse 25, it says Now great crowds accompanied him, accompanied Jesus. We're good out about this, Jesus word began to spread about his ministry and his teaching. And a lot of his teaching revolved around this concept of the kingdom of God. Now, most people on hearing this teaching on the kingdom of God would have thought about Jesus overthrowing the Roman authorities and restoring the Davidic reign in Judah. These people liked Jesus. They liked his teaching because they they thought that it meant those things. They thought his teaching and his life and his, his life goal and the implementation of that would bring about their comfort, their control, and their better capital. But three times, three times in this passage, in verse 26, I believe, 27, and verse 33, Jesus says... You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple unless you do really hard things. Jesus makes it really hard to vote for him. He makes it really hard to join his kingdom. Jesus didn't want a crowd, evidently, unlike many politicians. Jesus wanted disciples. And by... His attempt of gaining disciples, what does he tell them? He tells them this, count the cost. Count the cost. To bring this message home, Jesus shares two parables or two stories in verses 28 to 33. Two parables, two stories which illustrate against making a hasty decision to follow God. The first story goes a bit like this. Jesus says, He who does not count the cost and follows me is a bit like a guy who goes out and builds a tower. A guy who builds a tower but stops short. Why does he stop short? Well, he stops short because he runs out of resources. Because he runs out of resources, this guy becomes the laughingstock of the town. People mock him. Because what is left is this permanent Half-finished structure, which is a constant reminder of his failure. Which is a constant reminder of the fact that he did not count the cost. Jesus' message is this, count the cost. Before you begin a work, count the cost. I don't know how many half-finished towers that we know of in our lives. I don't know how many lives we know of, lives that began to build a life for God, began to base their lives on God, began to build something for the kingdom of God, but finished short. Jesus is saying, do you want to finish? Do you want to finish this race? Do you want to finish well? Do you want to finish in such a way that is done so for the glory of God? Then you better count The cost. The second story that Jesus shares is a story of a king, a king who is um, on the verge of fighting another king in war. And Jesus says, Doesn't that king look at his army and compare his army with the army of the enemy? Doesn't he compare forces? And if that king cannot defeat the other king, doesn't he go and send terms of peace? There's a lot in this parable, just this one parable alone that Jesus shares. But but really the main message is this, before you go any further, before you continue on in your journey, before you, who is part of this crowd, before you step further into this journey of following after me, you better count the cost. We're challenged today. Have we counted the cost The cost of following Jesus. I guess the the opposite of counting the cost is, is going with the flow. Dave asked me, why are you a Christian? I think that's a really good question. And I think there's something in that question that reveals whether or not we have actually counted the cost. How many people are Christians because, well, they just are. They're Christians because, well, that's the way they were raised. Or, well, my friends are in church. Or, that's what I've always known. Jesus would say, count the cost. Count the cost. If we are to count the cost, I don't know about you, but I'm left with the question... What is the cost? It would be helpful to know the cost if we're going to count something. What is the cost? Well, well, Jesus helpfully gives us three examples of what the cost is. In verse 26, Jesus says the cost is this. The cost is hearing. Hearing your father and mother, husband or wife, your children, your brother or sister, yes, even your own life. I don't know about you, but I don't know how that makes you feel. Hate is such a strong term. And if I'm honest with myself, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And it makes me a little bit confused as well, because what I know of the rest of the Bible And what I know from the rest of what I've been taught from others from the Bible seems to contradict this teaching of Christ that we read in this verse. It is true, true that Christianity and Jesus have done more in our world to elevate the importance of the family unit being tethered together by bonds of love and compassion and care and unity, that is true. But yet here we read Jesus saying, "Hate, hate those people, hate those people that have loved you most, hate those people who are charged as the primary people who are to care for you." What is going on here? Well, to say I love this and I hate that is a is a typical biblical way of expressing preference. Okay. So we see that in in the rest of the Bible in different places. We see it in Genesis chapter 29 verse 30 through to verse 31. Let me read that to you. It says this, so Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah. So Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah and served Leban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. It wasn't that Leah was hated. It was just that Rachel was more favoured than Leah. And a simil- in a similar way, that's what the Bible's saying here. The Bible's saying that we are to prefer Christ over everyone else in our life. We are to prefer him over those who are charged with the weary task of caring for us. And we're even meant to love Christ more than those people we're to primarily, primarily care for, our children. What Jesus is saying here is this, you're to love people really, really well, but you're to love Christ more. You're to love people in your life with the greatest love that you can conjure within yourself, but you're still to love me more. He is saying And most of us won't have to ever come face to face with this. But if it comes to a place in your life where you must choose between me and family. Well you must choose me. Discipleship is treasuring Christ above all else. Most of us won't have to abandon family or those closest to us. But some will, and some have. Moses was compelled to leave the courts of Pharaoh, his adopted family, the place of, of protection and care and blessing. Yet God compelled him to leave that place and to leave his family. And today, scores upon scores of people, particularly in, in Islamic nations, upon their conversion, have to leave, have to leave their loved ones are disowned by their families. And for them, this isn't just a figure of speech. This is a reality. And they pay willingly that price. The second cost that we encounter is in verse 27. Jesus says, bear your cross. During this speech to this crowd, this day, Jesus was journeying towards Jerusalem. Jesus was going toward his death. Jesus knew what awaited him. He's he seen the cross in the horizon. And Jesus is saying to this crowd, you want to follow me? Then come with me. You want to come with me? Walk with me to Jerusalem. I think we're desensitized a little bit to the cross um, desensitized to what is, is really going, going on there. The cross was a symbol of public shame and humiliation. Criminals were forced to carry their cross and they were mocked and jeered at by bystanders. By the cross was a brutal, suffocating, agonizing form of, of Roman execution, to put it in modern terms, Jesus is saying, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Then take up your electric chair. You want to follow me? Where's your stake at at, at, at where you're going to be burned at? Where is it? When criminals carried their cross, they were many respects dead men walking jesus is saying you must die if you want to be my disciple he's really saying this you must die to your preference you must die to your will you must die to being lord of your life and you must make me lord of your life you must be willing to take on my commands you must be willing to take on my will for your life a bit like a soldier A bit like a soldier who would abandon all, who would leave all, who would leave his family and his home and leave all he knows. At what? At the command of a captain. The third cost we see is in verse 33. Jesus says we must renounce all that we have to literally say adios, to say farewell. Now, Christians today and historically and in biblical times owned possessions and property and yet didn't feel compelled to give up those possessions and lay them all down. But the point that Jesus is making here is this. We must be willing. Willing to let go of those things. Willing to say goodbye to our toys and our possessions. We must be willing to yield up our ownership and our sense of entitlement to things. See, owners feel a sense of entitlement. They feel like their things are rightfully theirs and no one better take them from them. But stewards have a spirit of abandonment. Stewards have an ability to see that, that what they have is not outrightly theirs. Um, A bit like if you've ever borrowed someone's lawnmower, okay? Uh, It's not your lawnmower. You better look after it. And you better not keep it because someone else owns it. See, Jesus is saying here, realize that everything you've been given is a gift. And when you realize that, we can be winged Mm. of our creature comforts. We can be winged of those consumeristic, self-indulgent Things that Jimmy Carter and Jesus are pointing to. Jesus seems harsh in this passage. I don't know how you feel so far, but I've made you feel really uncomfortable. Um, and I think that that's a normal response, okay? So you can relax and breathe. I think that's the intention of Jesus. These words seem Harsh. But what we really see here in this passage is just Jesus' kindness. Jesus' kindness in telling us the truth, that following him is just really hard. It's just really plain difficult at times. And if your walk with God is difficult, if the price seems like a lot of times, Jesus is saying, you're walking the life of discipleship. You're along the right path. You're not just part of the crowd after it for benefits and money and nice things. Jesus is saying here, your faith will inevitably cost you something. And when that time comes, will you still be part of the crowd then? Will you still be walking with me then? When you have to choose between family and possessions, when you have to choose between me and your own life, who will you choose? When I walk to the cross and go to the cross, you're part of the crowd now, but at my crucifixion, will you be part of the crowd then? Challenging words. I don't know about you, but I'm shook. (laughs) I am shook at the core At those words, Jesus is saying this, will you be part of the crowd at my crucifixion? Where was the crowd? Where were they? Well, there was a crowd there, but what did they shout? Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus is saying, will you abandon me? Will you abandon me too? This is difficult stuff. This is challenging stuff. But I'm comforted. I'm reassured by how our Savior dealt with Peter. Peter, the betrayer. Peter, not the betrayer, the denier. Three opportunities he had to count the cost and to pay the cost, yet, three times he denied. Jesus. Three times he turned his back on Jesus. Yet Jesus in tenderness and compassion and care and grace and love like we've never experienced from anyone else comes to us in tenderness and gentleness and restores us and reminds us that it's okay. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't know how you feel when someone wrongs you. I don't know how you feel when someone uh, betrays you or denies you. But Jesus responds tenderly to Peter, and Peter, as we know, goes on to lead the church. See, as disciples, this passage is scurry. Jesus isn't looking for the finished article. We can't be the finished article. That's the point. Jesus is for us. So, what is a disciple then? One who a disciple is one who is seeking and striving. To love the Lord their God as much as they can in the moment they find themselves in, in the circumstances that are before them. Christians aren't just those people in Islamic countries who are laying down their lives, what examples they are, but Christians are people like you and me. Disciples are people like you and me who Jesus challenges to keep keep loving me, keep serving me, keep giving more of yourself to me. Commit your life to a journey of self-denial, step by step, giving up more of yourself, giving up more of your possessions, giving up more of your sense of entitlement. Go that journey hand in hand with your Savior. Now, if we are to count the cost and we know what the cost is, I'm left asking, is the cost really worth it? Is it really worth it? Who would pay that price? The price is high. The price is ultimately living lives that, that we naturally wouldn't live. Many people are paying the ultimate price today and, and laying down their lives. We might not lay down our lives, but we're certainly still called to die certainly still called to die to ourselves, to die to our preferences, to die to our desires for the things of this world, is it really worth it? It's only worth it. It's only worth it if the object that we obtain is so far superior and so far more glorious than anything that we could have Otherwise, let me give you three reasons why the cost is worth it as we wrap up. Firstly, the cost is worth it because of the supreme preciousness of Christ. Philippians 3 verse 8 says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Everything, everything in this world, everything else our fingers can get a hold of, everything else we can apply our minds to, and our time to, and our energy to, and our resources to, all of it's rubbish when you place it side by side with the supreme one, the precious one the all-consuming, glorious one. See, when we truly see the infinite worth and beauty and glory of Jesus, only then do we consider it worth it. Only then do we consider it a joy to give up, to go without, to lay down, to let go of those things. The cost is worth it. It's worth it because of who he is and because of the eternal treasure we have in Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing in all creation could compare to him. Your life going perfectly, getting that dream job, landing yourself In a great marriage. Whatever your desire might be. It will not compare to Christ. The alternative just is not worth it. See the cost seems like a lot. And the cost is a lot. But I don't know about you. But I pity. Those people. Who at their funeral. Eulogy. 50% of it is taken up about their love for Manchester United Football Club. Yes, they were great parents, and yes, they were great dads and moms and friends and uncles, and, and they loved Man United. I don't know about you, but when I consider the alternative, how does the cost seem then? The cost of living for a greater purpose. The cost of fixating your eyes, not on the scores on a Saturday of a football game, but fixing your eyes on Jesus and living for him. Only in living for him and serving him do you serve a purpose that is truly worth it. Only then do you serve a purpose that that has eternal weight attached to it. I'm not dissing the uh, support Manchester United Football Club. That's a, that's a good thing and that's a great thing. But it's certainly not worth basing 50% of your funeral eulogy all around. Secondly, firstly, the cost is, is worth it because of the su- supreme preciousness of Christ. Secondly, the cost is worth it because of the great treasure to come. Matthew 19, verse 29. Hear the similarities in our passage This morning, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. We can let go, we can lay down our lives because something better than life awaits. You and me here find in Christ Jesus. We can let go of family if it comes to it, because one day we will be united with a family made up of every tribe and every tongue through every century of history. We can lay down earthly things because we're bound for the riches of heaven. We can lay down our lives and our things because get this, if we don't lay down our lives and things, well, we're gonna lose them anyway, aren't we? (laughs) We're gonna have to let go anyway. The cost is worth it because of the supreme preciousness of Christ, the cross. The cost is worth it because of the great treasure to come and finally, as I conclude, the cost is worth it because the object that you obtain is the one that, who deemed you worth it. Jesus is worth it because he's not like a politician. Aren't you glad? He's more like a doctor, uh, a bit like Dave, but even better, okay? Jesus is a bit like a doctor who goes on a life risking mission to reach a cut off, remote Himalayan tribe of people to bring urgent medical aid. And you were that remote Himalayan mountain person who needed aid. When no one else would come. And quite frankly, no one else could come. This doctor comes to your aid. This this doctor comes and rescues you. When Jesus spoke these words, as I've already said, he was going to the cross. He was going to Jerusalem. He was going to the... He was going to die for you. He died for you. His object was you. He would obtain you. He counted the cost of the cross and he went through with the cost. The full non PG version. All right? Full brunt of death and despair. And he did it for you because he deemed you worth it. Jesus is worth it. And now we have been given this gift of life like that Himalayan deserted person. We have been given this urgent aid. And this doctor comes to us and says, join me. Join me in counting the cost and paying the cost to go to the next village, higher up this mountain with this urgent medical aid. Will you come with me? Listen, I can't promise you safety. I can't promise you that you'll see your family again in this life. I can't promise you that you'll see your possessions. I can't promise you life but I can promise you life eternal and I can promise you a reward that is fit for royalty like you've never seen. It'll cost you, but it will be worth it. Fear not. Let's pray together.